Be Frank Network. Welcome back to Friends Like Us. Marina Franklin here, your host. This week on Friends, we have new friends to the show. Tara Semmeyer. Tara is currently a CNN political commentary contributor to ABC News and former GOP communications director on Capitol Hill. She's appeared on ABC's The View, ABC's Good Morning America, and on HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher. In addition to her work with The Lincoln Project, Semmeyer is also the host of the podcast, Honestly Speaking with Tara. New friend to the show, Joanna Briley. Joanna's work for the MTA made her one of the friendliest token booth clerks. Her love of stand-up and job allowed her to write and produce Swipe This, My Life in Transit. In 2014, Joanna held residency at Inkwell Jazz and Comedy Cafe in Bedsty, Brooklyn, where she produces and books the monthly Unlimited Laugh Tracks Comedy Showcase. She is the proud creator of the Black Women in Comedy Festival in New York City that started in 2019. And she will have her second festival in June, June 16th through the 20th. And he's back, John Laster. John, a veteran New York City-based comedian originally from Denver, Colorado, he taped three seasons of BET's Comic View, hosts the first and second underground comedy festival here in New York. And when we get back to some kind of normal, check him out as he is a regular at the Comedy Cellar. I want to thank all of our listeners, friends like us. Because of you, we make some pretty impressive lists like Oprah Magazine, rating us as a podcast that every woman should hear. We thank everyone, of course. You can hear us on Google Podcasts Now, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts. Review us on Apple Podcasts. That's important. Subscribe. You can email us at friendslikeuspodcast at gmail. Our Instagram is friendslikeuspodcast. And Twitter is friendslikeus10. Leave us a tip or donation. Become a friend. Go to our Patreon page. Go to Patreon backslash friendslikeus. If you're a friend on Patreon, we do offer free t-shirts. Yeah, we got merch available. We got hoodies, t-shirts, face masks, coffee mugs. Get yours today. Tomorrow, after this episode goes live, that's January 21st, We'll be streaming live on my YouTube page, Marina Y. Franklin. So check that out. Marina Franklin on YouTube with Vanessa Fraction, Dominique Witten, and Aaron Jackson. We're doing a post-inauguration show. Yeah, let's rub it in. Also, I'm headlining my first virtual comedy show, Thursday, January 28th. Get those tickets. Go to marinafranklin.com. And with friends like us, it'll help you feel not so alone because all of this content is on the way. Most important, tell someone you know to check us out and wash those dirty little hands. Mm -hmm. Wear a mask. Welcome to Friends Like Us. Marina Franklin here. I am here today with two new guests, Joanna Briley and Tara Setmeyer and John Laster is returning. Thank you for returning, John. This is a very tense week. So I, and I met Tara last week as I was auditioning for a show for the Lincoln Project. And I met her and I just was like, I, I've seen you on The View several times. I've, you know, well, was it one time or so? It was, I saw you on it The View. The few, yes, at least yeah. five. <laughs> Before Megan McCain decided that she was too threatened by uh, me and uh, uh, didn't want me there anymore. Can they do that? I mean, do you, does she like actually say, I don't want you on the show? I mean, 
allegedly there is there is um you know there was a big flap about a year ago um between her husband um deciding to tweet um in some kind of a weird stupor attacking many of us never republic never trump republicans who were very outspoken at the time and we were putting together a conference and her husband runs a right-wing website that's very pro-trump and um, he decided to attack us and, we, uh, you know, we clapped back at it because it was nonsense. And um, I made a comment during the conference saying, like, you're not going to shut us up. And I've been calling the Trump cult a cult for many years now. And that was one of the that was the last time Megan McCain and I were on The View together in 2018 because she took issue with it. And we had an argument on air and I didn't back down from her, which I guess she's not used to. So uh, ever since then, um, we had not appeared on the program together. I've co-hosted several times since then, guest hosted. And uh, it was reported last year that um, the reason why people hadn't seen me more often was because she objected. And um, I, that was news to me. It's the first I'd heard that rumored in public. But I kind of got a sense of that's what was going on. I just think it's absurd. And, um, you know, that's what happens when, you're, when you have a famous last name. It's supposed to be a show where you disagree. So <laughs> right. you, if you disagree, you don't get blocked off a show. You <laughs> get blocked off of Twitter if you uh, incite a coup. Oh, right, uh, right. You shouldn't be blocked off of a sh I mean, I've seen her and Joy go at it. Joy oh, yeah. went really hard at her last... I watched the show probably way too much. Joy went at her really hard last week. I think she says Deservedly. Like, I'm not... I don't, I'm not happy that you're back. And I was like, she Ooh. said, she said, Joy, you know, you missed me. And Joy was like, no, not really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she was serious. But, you know, I mean, in, in, in full disclosure, of course, ABC publicly never admitted that was the reason. Um, but the, the, the tabloids had some things to say about that because people behind the scenes off the record, you know, it's not, it's not unknown that she's not well liked. No one likes her, but the higher ups like her. And because she's who she is, and um, every show has to have a villain. The, the ratings of the show went up when she was gone on maternity leave. And a lot of people were just like exasperated when she came back because they're over it enough with the, with the spoiled brat, you know, obnoxious act. Like it's it doesn't advance the conversation. You know, The View is a fantastically successful show because of the different points of view. And um, she just doesn't bring anything to the table that I think is um, substantive enough as far as dissent. It becomes about her and her tantrums. Let's talk about this coup. Um, and I agree with you. She does have tantrums. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm none of us, by the way, none of us would ever get away with. Let's just ever. be clear about and, that. And I don't understand also like her father, his, his disrespect for her father, why you would defend. I mean, she doesn't seem to defend Trump. She's lately she's it's a thin line. Like she doesn't defend him. And then she sort of defends everything around him. She defends and, his, his supporters. That's yes. how, you know, well, sure. She's in a tough position because her husband is, you know, part of the propagating the big lie. So, <laughs> you know, she that's who she's married to. So, you know, I don't know. We're, I don't want to spend any more time trying to psychoanalyze Meghan McCain and her emotional dysfunction, but. <laughs> no, but it is crazy because it I, is. I it's like I go through because I watch that show like like I said, people said, Marini, part of your problem is you watch it too much. <laughs> I I look at her and I dissect her quite often because sometimes I I she makes very good points and mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, that's great. And then sometimes she goes off the rail. And I'm like, no, now, now I can't 
I can't like you. Right. So, I, you know, and that's the problem I'm having. Like, where are we today with Republicans who are finally jumping off this ship? Like, you know, Tara, you've been a Republican. Now you are a moderate. No, I'm still a conservative. I'm just unaffiliated politically. Uh, okay. Yeah. My belief system hasn't changed. It's the, the political party affiliation I can no longer associate with, given that they are um, they've gone off the rails in ways that are just <laughs> unjustifiable. There's no redemption um, in in what they've done, what they've allowed, what they've enabled, what they've collaborated on. And they have violated so many of the tenets of what the Republican Party was supposed to stand for. You know, as you know, I'm a senior advisor for the Lincoln Project, and Abraham Lincoln was the gold standard of the Republican Party, right? The party of Lincoln. Um, and then it was the party of Reagan. Um, and then, you know, and and it was there is nothing recognizable today with those parties in the past. Or when I joined the Republican Party, there it is gone. There's not an iota of that left. And principally, I could no longer associate with that. And you know, when you're part of a violent insurrection, propagating an authoritarian lie about our free and fair elections, it doesn't get any more anathema to the party of Lincoln than that. Yeah. So I will open this up to, the you know, Joanna and John. How did you, were you surprised? No, I wasn't surprised. I was more like, wow, they really did it. You know what I mean? Because you hear it in the background, you, you see it on Twitter, you see it in these these groups on Facebook and social media, and you hear them at the rallies, but for them to actually do what they did, it made me realize when I read about it in history class, when they had insurrections or or the revolts, the Revolutionary War, it's like, wow, this is happening in real time. In my, this day and age, 21st century is happening and it's not even, I can't, they're extremists. You know what I mean? So it's not even to me like real people. They're like on the deep, far deep end. If, if it was just regular people doing it, then I could say, okay, this is not normal. But these are like, to me, extremists, people that are on the fringe, the Q, QAnon people, um, the ones that just don't have any real sense at all. And the people there that were got- some- some soldiers there. Right. They were well. They they got sucked in. They got. They were lawyers. Yeah, lawyers. Yeah. There's a lot of people that got sucked in with the conspiracy theory. Uh, I I don't go down that rabbit hole. I stay off YouTube. And somebody starts to. I don't go down that rabbit hole because you it it, it sucks you in to start. But like, what's that thing? Uh, the blood. What's the they they sucking kids' blood? You know, like they. I was like, wait, wait, wait. There's a pedophile ring that's trying to suck the blood of little children. So they can get superpowers. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not doing it. I can't. I'm not going to follow this, you know, this rabbit hole. But yeah, it, it, that far right, that extreme terroristic mentality. And, and, and I, I, I can't even make sense of it other than I believe that we're in for more. I have a problem like when we keep trying to pretend that this is some far right fringe. 68% of the Republican Party in a Reuters poll believes that the election was stolen, Republicans. 68%. This isn't a fringe. This is no, stop calling this some fringe. 44%, 45% of Republicans polled recently in Reuters said that they had no problem with the Capitol being stormed. Stop calling this a fringe. These, this party has boiled down 
to a bunch of white people who are angry at the browning of America. And until we call it what it is and quit trying to call it some little crew of people who have nothing to do with the Republican Party, the Republican Party used to stand for uh, small bu uh, budget responsibility. They blew up the budget. They spend all the money that they do every time they get in the office. They crash the economy. Like trying to pretend that their, their platform, does anyone know what the Republican platform was this term? Nothing. They don't have one. First time ever. Thank you. As someone who was in the party for 25 years, the platform was like a really important thing. So the fact that we didn't have one was crazy. So, so think about this. You know what they told their voters we're going to do for you? Not a goddamn thing. Just don't let them have anything. And until we address that, that the Republican Party had no platform, meaning we're not even going to pretend anymore. And we keep calling this a fringe. That's who they are. Let's stop with this fringe nonsense. This is a party that is boiling down to angry white people that do not believe that everyone else should have an equal say. Full stop. So, Tara, how successful is the Lincoln Project at restoring the Republican base or is zero because that, that's not our mission. <laughs> it's not, it's not no. your mission. No, no, that's it's not our job to try to um, find redemption for the uh, the Republican Party. That that ship has long sailed. Many of the founders of the Lincoln Project have walked away from the party. Um, some have joined the Democrats. Some of us are, uh, like myself, are uh, independent now. And there's a big discussion going on within the Never Trump Republican community. Um, I was on uh, a call this morning with a group of us, of thought leaders that are uh, sane, trying to figure out what do we do? We were trying to figure out what we do after the election, because many of us were still holding out hope that there would be a repudiation of Trumpism. That's why I didn't I didn't um, leave the party till after the election, because I was holding on hope, like with my good friend, Michael Steele, who was the former RNC chair. I've known Michael over 20 years. You know, he would always say, you know, come on, this is still we're still part of this. This is still our house. We're not going to let them kick us out of our own house. We need to stand strong and push back. And I said, I agree. However, I will reassess after the election, because if there's no repudiation, people don't change. There's no incentive to change. So when I saw that 75 million people still voted for this freaking lunatic, I said, oh, no, 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 no. We've got a much, much, much bigger problem. There is no incentive for the Republican Party to uh, course correct. And there's no room in it for people like myself or even Michael. And I, can, I keep uh, giving him a hard time about why he stays. But he's, you know, he's still looking at now since the insurrection, many of the people who were former officials who didn't support Trump are trying to figure out, is there an opening now? Because, you know, you, if you give the devil too much rope, he's eventually going to hang himself. And that's kind of what some people see happened with that. But then the flip side of it is 147 Republicans still voted to contest the election. So because they're afraid of primaries, this is profiles and cowardice to the nth degree. And it's literally cost bloodshed, which is something that I've warned about for a long time and worried about, lost sleep at night about. You know, my husband's a federal um, law enforcement agent and he was at work that day, not in the middle of that melee, but with another agency. It was just, it hit home that my worst fears had come true and Republicans still, there were a large number who still went forward with this big lie. That tells me it is irredeemable. So the Lincoln Project's goal is to root out Trumpism, not to rebuild the Republican Party, 
they have to worry about that themselves. We are a pro-democracy movement and we will support anything that supports pro-democracy and we will go after anyone who supports anti-democratic things, small d, because the future of the republic is at stake here. Our job is far from over. With that Trumpism, which is this a lot of work that's going to be done because, I, you know, it's just like I kind of was like ahead of everyone with the coronavirus. You know, I knew it was coming before anyone else, you know, <laughs> just so you know, I always knew. Uh, you, uh, you and Dr. Fauci, you're in good company. Yeah. Oh, I was before <laughs> Fauci. Fauci needs to, he needs to seek my advisement. I feel like this, if I was to diagnose the country, I feel like we've got probably a, a good 10 years of work to do. And it's going to be a, there. There will be blood already has. been. Yeah, already has been. But there, it's not over. I mean, no. they just said that uh, the FBI has warned that armed protests are being planned at all 50 state capitals from the 16th of January through at least the 20th of January and at the U.S. Capitol from. Yeah. So Which is unprecedented, by the way, I'm very plugged into a lot of folks in the national security space. I have friends who are counterintelligence uh, professionals. And even um, on CNN last night, some of my colleagues over there were expressing, particularly Andy McCabe, who was the former acting FBI director. He was in the crosshairs of Donald Trump early on because of his involvement in the Russia investigation. He was a counterintelligence officer for two decades, and he said he's never seen a warning like that ever. That should send chills down the spine of everyone. This is serious. So do we stay? We don't just stay inside for the virus. Now we have to worry about our lot, like being shot on the street or stabbed or ice picked. Right. Yeah. It's um, I mean, the, the dereliction of duty by Donald Trump and his administration, not only on the coronavirus, I mean, that speaks for itself. And it's crazy that a ma- that a pandemic that has cost the lives of 360,000 Americans and counting with Americans, the number of people dying a day is larger than 9-11. We're having a 9-11 type death event every day that is going largely unreported because we have an insurrection going on. I mean, whoever had that on their bingo card, I certainly didn't. But the dereliction of duty, not only at responding to coronavirus, it's led to that mass amount of death, but the fact that it just seems that Republicans are trying to say, well, let's just move on. You know, impeachment's divisive. It's over now. No, it's not over now, people. And, you know, yeah, you all were collaborators and you need to pay your price too. But stop with this. Let's just move on because it's too divisive. It, what more do you need to see? Donald Trump was sitting in the White House getting off on watching that violent insurrection on Wednesday. He didn't do anything. The Washington Post did an amazing story on the TikTok of what happened. And if that's not enough to remove him, I don't know what is. But he didn't do anything because he liked it. That is a sociopathy unlike anything we've ever seen in the Oval Office of this this country. He didn't do anything because he let it. Don't forget that that he stood out there and riled him up before he went to the White House to watch it. For weeks. (laughs) So with defunding the police, which is, this is a, you know, deeper, like, because a lot of us saw there were police there you know, images of them escorting them in, waving them in, or, and then when they were told to leave, escorting them politely out. And the, you know, the thing about it being an inside job. So, you know, before this, I felt like the phrase defunding the police was starting to lose its steam, even within the Democratic Party and with people who were shouting defunding the police. 
What do you think about this now? We already know that police are part of the problem. They're infiltrated in all of these organizations. From slavery, we know what the police are there for. I truly believe there was an inside job. I believe the police had something to do with this. The security, it was too lax based on what we know for Black Lives Matter and compared to what happened today. But I definitely feel like these officers allowed this to happen. A certain amount of them, not all of them, but there was a certain amount of them that were involved on a high level, not just the, the regular street uh, level, low level, but in a higher level, because there's no way those people should have gotten in. They shouldn't have been able to uh, infiltrate the way they did. And I just, I truly believe defunding the police, maybe this is retaliation. You know, these officers felt, you know, the need to show and prove that they were down for the cause and that they're willing to die for the opportunity to show that they're willing to take over the government. They're willing to stand for whatever they believed in. And defunding the police at this point in time would be, I, I, I don't even know how they're going to vet because having 15,000 troops there doesn't mean they're not in the, in the National Guard. It doesn't mean that they're safe. So how do you get all of them out? by defunding the police and starting all over. But I, I, I don't know, America, I don't know how we're going to do that because it's so ingrained in our society. What was the black officer was the one that led them in the, what was the black officer's name? Eugene Goodman. Oh, thank you, Eugene Goodman. I mean, hero. Hero. He's an example of, it's, it's, it's not the one who's protecting us. It's the ones that, you know, this whole thing about bad apples. I mean, your grandfather, Tara, I looked it up. Your grandfather was a police officer in... Paramus, New Jersey, yeah. Paramus, New Jersey. One of the first in that, in that uh, police department. I'm from Bergen County, New Jersey, so shout out to Jersey. And uh, it's funny, I just came across um, a photo my mom took where she found the article from 1963 when he was promoted to captain, wow. <laughs> which is pretty cool. But yeah, my grandfather was a police officer, captain for decades. And so I grew up in a law enforcement family. And um, but I'm also biracial. So my mom, my mom is German Italian. My father's actually from Guatemala. And um, but I grew up with my mom. My husband is black. When I said he's a federal law enforcement officer, you know, he's, he's a brother from Brooklyn. God knew what he was doing. Sending me a brother from New York. Um, <laughs> not everybody can handle us Jersey girls. He had to be from New York and New Jersey. So we're Giants fans, you know, my, my, you know, he's a brother from Brooklyn. But anyway, but he uh, you know, I look at the the defund police conversation and you know, there are definitely problems within police departments and reforms need to happen. But the defund police terminology, the messaging was a disaster for Democrats. It almost cost them the election. Um, that's what cost many of the uh, Democrats who won in 2018 in the more moderate districts that took out Republicans in the 2018 midterms. It cost them their races. So the messaging behind that was awful. I was a political communications expert for two decades. <laughs> and believe me, when I heard the defund police language coming out and I was like, oh, my God, what are you guys doing? You're shooting yourselves in the foot. Uh, no pun intended. I'm like, this is so bad because even the, you know, the moderate suburban voters who were starting to finally wake up to the Black Lives Matter movement and what people were marching for and the realistic social injustices going on, racial injustice and policing, they were not okay with that. It was uncomfortable with that. We're like, ah, we're not defunding the police now. And so it was, um, I, I hope that they, it, 
the reform police or, you know, other ways of going about this happens. But that the way you speak about things, words matter and people internalize them differently. As far as what happened with the Capitol Police and it being an inside job, the, there's an investigation going on right now. Two officers have already been suspended. The one that was seen taking a selfie suspended, which he should have been. The officer who um, put on a MAGA hat and was directing people suspended. Uh, and now there are 10 to 15 more officers who are under investigation to find out what the hell they were doing and what was going on. Wasn't it an inside job further up the chain? I don't think so. Uh, what happened here is that the Trump administration, people have to realize Washington, D.C. is not a state. It's not its own. It doesn't have a governor. It's a federal district. The mayor has limit limited power over policing. She controls the pol Metro Police Department and she can request the National Guard. The federal government has to activate them. That means Donald Trump's de Department of Defense. The National Guard was called up, but they were not activated. Right. Maryland and Virginia had National Guard troops that they were ready to send and they were delayed for hours because Donald Trump would not give the order where, it's, where it has to come from. So that's a problem. There should have never been. And days before, everyone saw, if you're paying attention, everyone saw the warnings going on in the right wing, crazy town um, parlor places and gab and even on Twitter and other places. People were planning this for weeks and weeks and they were very explicit about what they wanted to do. So, you know, the FBI has cyber security folks and DHS have cyber folks who monitor these things, but they're, they were hamstrung. They weren't able to do it. You see that how quickly they put up fences and sent National Guard troops out. They can do it. We saw what they did during Black Lives Matter protests. It can be done, but it wasn't on purpose. So that's more of an agenda coming from Trump and some sympathizers, sure. But I don't think that anybody thought it was going to be what it turned out to be purposefully. But they wanted to see some of that chaos for sure. And, and, and not only can it be done, like you said, not only did they know in advance Christopher Ray testified on the Hill that the biggest threat to America was these groups. Yes. This isn't this isn't some some oh my god where they come from. He testified to that in front of Congress that the biggest threat to America is these groups, but they don't put them on no fly list. They don't crash their organizations. Even the situation with Governor Whitmer, they stopped that before it happened because they were listening. This chatter was going on for weeks that they were coming to the Capitol to do this, out in broad daylight. They were so comfortable, they walked in there on live, live streaming themselves. So, of course, somebody kind of let them walk them in there. Now, I, I couldn't agree more with the, the fund the police, to me, is a microcosm of so much that is wrong with the, with the Democrats. The messaging on so many things buries us. Defund the police, Who, whoever let that keep perpetuating should really be slapped. Well, what should it be called? Like police reform. We need to reform what is going on with the police. But the, that, that, that bumper sticker of defund the police terrible. is terrible. And, and I'm a black man. Who gets, who gets bothered by the police more than a 6'4 black man? And I thought it was dumb as hell to say defund the police. That is dumb as hell. And they do so many things messaging wise that are dumb as hell. Like letting what happened in Seattle and Portland go on for weeks and weeks was absurd. 
I was like, you're giving Trump was dead in the water just off of coronavirus. And it gave life into his campaign because what was his campaign all summer long? It was all about how crazy Antifa is going to come and burn down your neighborhood because Democrats want this because they want to take away your way of life. And here are the images. I was like, stop it for fuck's sake. My God. But I'll, I, and I'll do you one better. Like I, I, I it just makes my my the little bit of hair that I have catch on fire when I hear people say, oh, well, we're, we're voting for for Republican policies. Republicans don't govern on Republican policies. Republicans blow up the deficit. They blow up the budget. They crash the economy. There's always more jobs created under Democratic administrations, and they cannot explain that. They cannot explain. They just sit there and say, oh, well, we're for, we're for small government. Until it comes to a woman's body or y'all building miles and miles of fence on the board, you're not for small government. You, are, you never have been. You're for small government with some of y'all, for some of y'all. But they cannot get that message across that these people are lying to you. They are scamming you. They say stuff like right to work, which means we don't want to pay you $15 an hour. Really? So who can get richer? The wealth gap has grown. It's 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 at it's at the old gilded age. You know what the, that right to work means? You have a right to pay your boss more money, to move into a bigger house, to put money places that he'll never see it, touch it, spend it, so that you can make seven dollars an hour. But they cannot explain that. They have no ability to say to people, "You are being bamboozled, hoodwinked, run amok." Oh, oh, there we go. Well, I do want to talk about free speech and Twitter because this conversation is was on the view a lot about how, you know, the slippery slope of free speech. And so this past weekend, social media companies almost on unilaterally banned President Donald Trump, citing the events at the Capitol and the possibility for more violence. What initially started out as a 12 hour suspension on Twitter soon turned into permanent bans from Facebook, Snapchat and even Pinterest, Pinterest, by the way, sometimes I, when I read, I, I, I mess up words, just so you know. Okay. <laughs> anyway, additionally, Parler, a more conservative oriented version of Twitter was completely taken offline this weekend after concerns mounted that the app was used to organize the attack on the Capitol. In a commentary for Western Journal, C. Douglas Golden argues that this takedown of conservative voices by big tech is a free speech issue. And Golden suggests that Twitter has allowed for other violence inciting tweets in the past and that Parler is more well moderated than some may think. So I'll go to you, Tar. Like, do you feel like this is a different issue with Trump and with, uh, I believe, the congressman's book, whose uh, Simon and Schuster decided they did not want to publish? Senator Josh Hawley. Thank you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who was one of the main um, purveyors of this lie that day? There's also an. Um, a picture that will live in infamy of him walking across the Capitol grounds as this was about to emerge with his fists raised. You know, it is, he's a disgrace. And frankly, I think there is an argument to be made that he could be expelled from the Senate under the 14th Amendment, Section 3, where it says that, you know, you can't be an elected member of the Congress and participate in an insurrection. So that's for them to argue. But there, um, I think there's a case for it. Him, Cruz, and a bunch of other congressmen like Mo Brooks, who said, let's go kick some ass. Paul Gozar, Congressman Wackadoo from Arizona, whose own family cut an ad with his opponent against their own brother. That should tell you what you all you need to know about what kind of person he is. 
and others. I mean, he collaborated on Twitter openly tagging one of the organizers of this Stop the Steal, um, Storm the Capitol, this, this crazy guy named Ali Alexander, who's been cut off of everything as well. So, you know, there were this idea that that it's free speech that's being muted here is absurd. The First Amendment, first of all, only applies to the government. Only to the government. Right. People forget this. It's a misnomer that free speech means you can say whatever the hell you want, whenever you want, wherever you want, with no consequence. Not true. That was the argument, you know, with um, with the NFL. Right. However, you felt about the protests or not. They're a private organization. They set the, the parameters for employment there. And if they felt what you were doing didn't align with the, the morals clause or whatever they set, they had every right to sanction, fire, um, not hire whomever they wanted to. It wasn't a free speech issue. They're private companies. For all of the the carping that the uh, Republicans and the conservatives in the right wing for we're going to turn into Venezuela, no socialism and communism, blah, blah, blah. Well, this is the free market riding the ship. These are private companies saying, yeah, we're not um, we're not going to do business with you anymore. No, we're not going to. We, we have no obligation to keep this type of inflammatory rhetoric using our platforms as a staging ground for a freaking coup attempt on the on the government. No, you're out of here. You violated our terms of service. If they want to, they can go ahead and start another one. But it's up to the private companies who wants to host it. You know, they're running into their own. Um, their own arguments about freedom. So they're not being muted. The president of the United States is not being muted. He's the freaking president still. He's got the East, he's got the East Room. He has the press briefing room. He has any opportunity he wants to with a traveling press that's around him constantly to go speak to anyone in the free press for protected by the First Amendment and say whatever he wants. But it's it's that they are not getting their way. They're used to having unfettered access and uh Fox News and 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 talk radio. Even talk radio companies like Cumulus, which is the one of the largest, as you guys know, in the industry, one of the largest um, companies that uh, puts out radio. And they've sent a warning out to the Sean Hannity's and Rush Limbaugh and you know the right wing guys that are on their platforms and said, if you keep talking this misinformation crap to the people, you'll get fired. That's extraordinary considering that they're cash cows for these companies, but they're taking a stand in favor of protecting this democracy. It's more important than the dollar. And that's what a free market allows for. The funny part about everything you said is them complaining that private companies are doing the correcting themselves is a Republican principle. Exactly. Wow. That's my point. Let the free market decide. It's a republic. That's what I mean about Democrats not being able to, to, when they say, oh, we're for Republican policy. No, you're not. It's not true. That is a Republican principle to let the free market make those decisions. The free market is doing it right now. They took them off Twitter. You would think they'd be thrilled. Right. The government right. didn't step in. The free market stepped in. And they want the government to step in by repealing Section 230 of the Telecommunications Act, which gives these these companies uh, liability protection. And if there weren't that, then it would be the end of Twitter and Facebook in these places. Now, now there's an argument to be made about whether there should be reform to Section 230 or whether these big tech companies have too much control over the dissemination of information. We can have that debate. I think that's a valuable one. But to completely repeal it in response to the fact you're not getting your way anymore, you're asking the government to interfere in 
the protected actions of private companies. That's the complete opposite. It's the antithesis of what Republicans have been screaming for years. It's nuts. So I I know you have to, she has to leave soon. So I want to make sure I get this, this, I don't know if I should ask this question because this may be too loaded, but I'll try anyway. And you could tell me because I, you guys will stay. Look at me. I'm like a teacher. You stay. (laughs) But I do want to ask you what it's like. How hard is it to be a black conservative? I mean, we have Christina Greer, who's been on the show several times and says it's, you know, more of the black population is actually conservative than they report. But how difficult is it to defend? Yeah. How difficult is it to be a black conservative and really translate it to the population like the black community? I mean, I just imagine you get attacked quite often and yeah, I mean, anytime you are a nonconformist or you go against the grain, of course, you'll get attacked. And um, but my mom always jokes that I was built for this. So it it has not been that difficult for me because I was prepared for always being different. You know, when you're you know, I, I grew up biracial in a predominantly white environment. So I was always different. But my mom taught me to never apologize for who God made me. Don't apologize for who you are. You know, never feel as though you're lesser than. Hell out of here with that, you know? So from a very young age, I I was um, never deterred from opposition or being different or what that meant or if people didn't, um, you know, the masses didn't stand with me on an opinion I had. I didn't care. So <laughs> little did I know that it would prepare me for this effort on a much larger stage. And so in the beginning of my political career, from the time I went to college at George Washington University, I faced backlash from my Black student union friends. And, you know, I I, I was interested in pledging Delta um, at GW. And I was um, not, I was unwelcome, frankly, into the sorority by some of the people there because I was a Republican. This was in the mid 90s, way before the Trump era. And I thought that that was um, unfortunate. So I didn't do that. But so I, I was um, I hit a lot of a, a lot of opposition, but people respected me because I stood my ground and because I made a concerted effort to try to explain my conservative values and why I thought they were better solutions to for the black community specifically when we were talking about that, whether it was school reform, whether it was welfare reform. You know, this is the 90s, even law, you know, um, criminal justice reform then back then different policies, different concepts, and I would present them without putting an R or a D next to it. I would just have conversations and people would go, oh, well, I didn't really think about it that way. Or, you know, I, I didn't know that that's what, you know, Republicans, Republican policies were on X, Y, and Z. So I made it a, a mission of mine for years to be a diff to present the conservative governing philosophy from a different point of view so people would listen. Because coming from someone who looks like me, I was less of a threat, right? There was no agenda. You know, when it comes from old, crusty white dudes, they're like, yeah, okay, you're talking that same stuff that we've heard. We don't want to hear that. I had an entree into the community to be able to talk about things in a constructive way. The most grief I took for years, it really wasn't that hard being a woman of color in the Republican Party. Um, actually, if anything, it was an advantage because I was an anomaly. And they sometimes I look back now and I'm like, were they using me as like a fig leaf or racism? Where was I? Uh, where did I get caught up in that? Not realizing. And so I've had a lot of self-reflection over the years and thinking like I look at some of my Facebook posts from years ago. And I'm like, oh, God, Tara, really? 
<laughs> you know, and so not yeah. realizing what I was a part of at the time. The most pushback I ever got was definitely from Black Democrats. I got called every name in the book, every name in the book. And I mean, I was accused of bleaching my skin, um, trying to be more white because, you know, I'm light skinned. My mom, you know, I get I tan very easily. We have a house in the Florida Keys. So in the winter, when no, most people don't have their tans, I'd be real dark because I'd be down in the Keys and people would say and then like I'd get lighter from losing my tan. And they'd say, oh, you're trying to bleach your skin to be more white. That's real. That actually wow. happened. That was about 12 years ago. But um, so, yeah, so I had the absurdity of insults like that for a long time. And I just was like, whatever. <laughs> now it's interesting how many people have come around and said, you know, we apologize. We didn't like you before because we thought you were this or that and selling out and, you know, and, but we see oh, that you is my kitty. Yes. Tiki making an appearance. Um, <laughs> I'm a cat lady too. Oh yes. I'm, I'm obsessed with my cat. He's 14 and he's the best. So yeah. So people, they apologized to me because they saw that I was, that I stood on principle and I still, my principles are still intact throughout this, how many Black conservatives sold out, really sold out? We're not talking just being Republican, you know, the, the t- typical accusation from Democrats, you're a sellout, Uncle Tom, blah, blah, blah. And, um, no. This time, after Charlottesville, I mean, Trump was bad enough. Those of us who grew up, like I said, I'm from Jersey. I grew up with Donald Trump on the front page of the tabloids in New York. I knew who he was. I knew what he did in Atlantic City. I was never taken by him. I warned from the very beginning. But there were some people who just were naive. They thought he was the guy from The Apprentice. They thought, you know, a businessman like Mitt Romney. He's a businessman. We need a businessman in the White House to run the government. But he was a celebrity con man. And so many of the people in this country were enamored by that and taken by it. And he was very good at repeating messages and propaganda and convincing people he was something he wasn't. You know, the, the, my, my black, I have lost a lot of my black conservative friends who have known for 20 years because they bought into the lie and they also wanted to stay in power. They liked their proximity to power in the Republican Party. And they saw, uh, they, you know, the Candace Owens and these people who came out of nowhere who were Democrats before that now had a platform. Now they were really being used as fig leaves to cover the racism that was going on. And in ways that were just despicable. Diamond and silk? Where, where do these mammies come from? You've got to be kidding me. You're a bunch of minstrel show fools. And they're being elevated at the Republican National Convention. Right. They're being, they're given shows on Fox News. You have got to be, they are, the, you know, so there, there were a lot of, um, a lot of interesting dynamics, but I'm glad though, that some of my black democratic friends who Back in the day, even some friends I went to college with who used to, you know, give me a hard time about being a Republican, but they always said I was their favorite Republican because I was sane, were like, you know, we always respected you for standing your ground and being honest, and you still maintained your integrity through this whole mess when a lot of other people did not. You know, that's, uh, I, I don't know how to be any other way. That's the letter that I write to The View when I say, why isn't Tara on the show? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, can, you, yeah, can keep, uh, you can keep writing that letter. I'm sure my agents would be very happy about it. <laughs> I would love it. I'd have a, I think I'd bring a very real world down to earth, well-rounded perspective to that show that's desperately lacking. You know, we'll see. Maybe the opportunity will still present itself one day. But, but I think, though, unfortunately, I have to say this, you know, because I do understand. And I and don't get it twisted, Tara. I believe that most black people are far more conservative than we'll ever vote. Culturally, I think there's a lot of things that yes, I think there's a lot of things that are attracted to us by the by way of the conservative movement. But the 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 out 
right racism on the right. And I don't mean, and I'm not, and I'm not talking about like, oh, they said this or Charlottesville. I'm talking about policy. I'm talking about putting kids in cages. I'm talking about one uh, drop box in Harris County. I'm talking about the things they actively do. They, in North Carolina, the Republican judge that oversaw that case said that they were taking a surgical precision to make sure that those people in North, he used the word surgical precision, a Republican judge yes. in North Carolina said that. So there's no way that I could vote. But even if I was to argue the policy, the policies that people say are Republican policies are lies. They do not cut deficits. They do not bring down the budget. That's, it's, it's not true. And then they always. I blaming. mean, there were times in the 90s where, you know, I was in the middle of it. Trust me that those were real things that we I mean, the contract with America were, you know, policy principles and policies that they cutting the deficit term limits, you know, welfare reform, all those things. Those were real policies back when people governed. It was the Tea Party that really ushered in that element where things started to go south. And, you know, I was naive to how much of the racist undercurrent was still present in the Republican Party. And I look back now and some of my friends who are, you know, that, that are never Trump Republicans like me, the few that I have left now <laughs> in my Republican political circles. But, you know, we all sit back and go, oh, my God. Stuart Stevens, who is a senior advisor for the Lincoln Project, wrote an, an unbelievable book called It Was All a Lie, which was life changing for me. He ran he was in, involved in five presidential campaigns. And so he's been around the block a long time and he's from Mississippi. And he wrote an, an excellent book admitting all of the racist things that were going on that he kind of swept under the rug as like, eh, we'll just push that aside for political gain and how that got out of control. And it's true. And the, you know, the voter suppression efforts by the Republican Party over the over the years are even more blatant than they ever were before. And Michael Steele, who I referenced before, said that when he was chairman of the RNC, he saw there was a consent degree that that was in place since the 19 early 1980s against the Republican Party to prevent voter suppression because of some efforts that they did in my home state of New Jersey. So there was a court order. There was a court order that the Republican Party couldn't engage in certain behavior over the years. It had to be renewed that a lot of people didn't know about. And when and it went away in 2018, which opened it up for the Republicans to do all the shenanigans that they were pulling for voter suppression in 2020. But when our, when Michael Steele was chairman of the RNC in 2010, he had to review the consent decree and see where we were. He said that he believed that the Voting Rights Act should have been expanded to all 50 states, not pulled back because of how much voter suppression efforts he saw on the ground in each state. And not even only the, the Voting Rights Act, but things that, that, that they always hold up and say, see, this is why you can't vote for these people. This is what they believe in. Like like when you just mentioned welfare reform, right? right. The Republican Party is always anti-welfare, anti-welfare until the farmers get it. It wasn't anti-welfare, which is, but, but that's the perception. But it was like we needed to not have incentives, the disincentives to work needed to be removed, which there were lots of. So we needed to reform it so that people, yes, we believe in a social safety net, but we want the idea of helping people, as Jack Kemp used to say when he was housing and urban development secretary under um, George H.W. Bush, Jack Kemp was like, we need to build ladders of opportunity, not just guarantee outcomes because you can't control what individuals do, but let's provide those ladders so that they have that step up. So that was kind of, but again, that goes back to messaging. So... <laughs> 
Right. A, a hand up, not a hand out. Correct. Right, correct. Right, right. Well, I'm still not over the block of cheese personally. <laughs> yeah. But um, oh. I do know you I do know you have to get out. Tara, I do. And I, I thank you. Is it Tara or Tara? I keep saying Tara. It's Tara? it's Tara. It's Tara. Okay, thank you. And and my listeners know I I mess up people's names. Oh, you're not the often. only one. It's a regional thing. I, you know, I go through all the time. Anyone who doesn't live in the New York metro area, the tri-state area has a tough time pronouncing the those A's. You know, we say parents, yes. we say family, we say Tara, you know, it's a different, it's a different dialect. So everybody else talks funny, not us. Well, I'm going <laughs> to ask you to just let our listeners know where they can find you. Sure. Um, you can always follow me on Twitter at Tara Setmayer. Uh, on Instagram at the Tara Setmayer. You can also find me on the Lincoln Project streaming channel. Um, we do an LPTV show called The Breakdown that I co-host with Rick Wilson, one of our um, ad extraordinaires. He's the brainchild behind many of the hard-hitting Lincoln Project ads. And um, that's on um, at 9 p.m. on Tuesdays and Thursdays for now, but across all the Lincoln Project streaming services. And I also have a podcast called Honestly Speaking with Tara, that a new episode will be dropping this week. We'll be talking about the security failures um, with a security expert about that. So um, yeah, that's where you can find me. I'm I'm the easiest person to find because there is only one Tara Setmayer. <laughs> with friends like us, let not your heart be troubled because we're paying attention and fighting for democracy and freedom as a group and helping to inspire others to do the same. Nice. Thank you. That's probably the best friend like us ever. Tara, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. I'm glad we were able to make it work. I'd love to have you back yes, too. Yes. Uh, thank you. Any, any, any time. I'm happy to do it. I'm definitely going to tune in um, to, to listen to you more. Um, are you running for office or anything? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it sounds like <laughs> that it. has always been the goal for me since I was 18 years old. I wanted to run for Congress because I felt like you know, that's um, the best place to be if I want to impact people's lives. That's why I've been inspired to be in politics was to impact lives. It really wasn't about me. And so I've been waiting to see what the redistricting is going to look like in New Jersey, where I'm from, to see whether that's possible or not now, especially since I made the decision to leave the party, it makes it more difficult. So leaving the party was also that, you know, it wasn't just a matter of I'm leaving. You know, there were a lot of long-term potential fallout from that, uh, including the ability, the impediment of running for office without a party affiliation. So we'll see. That is my ultimate goal when I, you know, when I grow up to to uh, be a, an elected member. But I, I think that there are a lot of folks that will never let me not run for office eventually. So when things settle and I get a, you know, an idea of what the landscape looks like, that is the uh, that is the ultimate goal because I I've always just wanted to serve and somebody's got to get in there and stand up because man, we've got some cowards in Congress. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we do. Well, thank you for being a part. Tell the Lincoln Project I said uh, hello. And they do a great job. They do a great job. <laughs> and you guys stay here. Thank you, you, guys. Bye. I appreciate it so okay. much. Bye. Bye. All right. So that was fun. I, you know, I am. I learned a lot. I learned a lot too. I mean, you know, I don't be having big words <laughs> when I be interviewing, <laughs> but I love the fact that you know. Because it's really interesting to me to find someone who is like Tara, because she seems very like she's like like a girlfriend, like she'd be a girlfriend, like a friend. And I think a lot of times conservatives or black conservatives get pigeonholed or the impression of them is that they're like Uncle Tom's or they're, you know, she's talking about like 
she's standing her ground on a lot of things that we believe in too. So it's, it's when we talk about reaching across the aisle, I think the only way I'm going to reach across the aisle is if it's with someone who looks like me, who can really break down to me, what is their platform, you know? And I'm glad you said what you said, John, because then it would have just, John, are you conservative? Are you, yeah, are you leaning that way? I'm, I'm, I'm very conservative, but again, even but I still have a, a, a huge problem with black conservatives and I can, I'm, I'm not, I don't, I'm not the type of person. Cause I said it while she was on here. Right. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I said it while she was on here, what my qualms are with black conservatives. And after I said what I said, you could hear her saying, yeah, I kind of feel bad because I didn't understand how bad these people were. She said that even herself. So for someone like me, who I consider to be very, very conservative, but I always knew who these people were. So some of them are now coming around to, to, to see, oh, I probably shouldn't have been participating because these people are more demonic than I thought. So, so on the outside, when, when there are people criticizing black conservatives saying, how in the world could you, it's not as if, it's not that she is still standing her ground. She's saying, yeah, I was kind of you. Some of these people are being. But we're all, we're, we, we all, that's the thing about, I think this conversation, which is even as comedians, we know what that's like to sometimes like there is a comic that I used to open for that his audience was mostly white guys from Jersey. And there was a point where I mean, and they loved me. I mean, I was like, why am I appealing to these white guys like that? And that's a, that's a that's another study or psychological analysis of how white people embrace black people who are for them in a way that it's like, wait a minute, but I thought, okay. But performing for him in this day and age, I was like, I can't. And I look back at some of the jokes I would do in front of his audience. And I was like, oh, Marina, you know? And I just think like if the if the black community or if black people in general could just be honest about sometimes because we've been the, of the oppression, right? Sometimes we do slip in to things without realizing it because of the psychological trauma, right? I mean, you, we're always like, why would I get up and do a certain joke in front of a, a, a white audience when I know that they're going to take it? in the way that they're going to take it. And I knew it. And then afterwards I was like, and it's funny because I, my conversation was with Bill Burr and he was like, you just have to not do it anymore <laughs> with another white man. Right. And I was like, Oh, but why did I do that? Like, what is that? And I, I feel like we need to study that a little bit more. Like in the fact that she admits to it is a great thing, but I feel like there's something there that we're not looking at closer and it's not just simply labeling someone an Uncle Tom or a traitor. I it's think just... it's identity. They identify. There's something in us that identifies with that group, the Republicans or the audience, if you will. It's about acceptance and whatever it is that we, we see, we, it's, we're able to relate in some kind of way or fashion that we fit in. Because from kids, like you said, she was, she was different. You know what I mean? I was different. We As comedians, we were all different growing up. So we try to find a way to find acceptance. And sometimes we will do material that, ooh, you know, spiritually we'll know that. But it's funny. We know we're going to win the audience because that's our goal, to win the audience. You know, so sometimes we will, you know, step outside 
of who we are just for that laugh until we grow up, you mature, and you got to figure out a new way. Because, you know, having a principle as a comedian and standing your ground is Dave Chappelle level. You know what I mean? When you could do your set and don't care and don't have issue with how people are going to receive it because you're in your truth 100%. So what Tara just said, you you opened up something she might not have even talk, thought about today. Now she's like, oh shit, maybe they were you. Yeah. That's because I'm such a great, uh, you know, I'm so good at my interviewing skills. Right? They, they say, Joanna, that when people come on my show, they tend to give out a lot more than they expected. It's something to do with my, well, you, my friend, voice. Friends friend like us, <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it's, it's very, the name in itself is relaxing. You know what I mean? So there's no reason to be on edge or, um, you know, apprehension, which I had. That's why I was on early because I was like, oh, my God, I don't I've, I've never done this before. I've never had a serious podcast interview before talk, you know, because everything's about comedy. Well, it's like, it's it, about comedy. Well, like you said, tell them what you said before, too, about you really didn't talk about politics. I thought that was interesting. Well, I don't because, you know, I didn't know John was conservative, you know, because we I see you as a comedian. I don't look when you when you're on stage, you really can't tell who the person is on stage and who they are off stage. So for me, just making jokes, making people laugh. Nobody really knows who I am. So I just felt like this is the time to just, OK, 2020 happened. I'm going to let uh peel off the layers of who I am as a, a a person, not even as a comic, as a person, because, yeah, I'm nice. You know, people know me as nice. Some people call me Mama Joe, because in the comedy community, I just love giving and, and, and coming up under you guys. I'm telling you guys, I was so such a fan that I didn't know how to ask for help. I didn't know how to, hey, could you mentor me or whatever? So what I did when I got an opportunity, I opened up, you know, uh, open mic where I can just give. I give to the point where it, it 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 was killing me inside because I really wasn't being my true self because I just wanted to give them love. These kids need love. Let me give them love. But I was like, nobody's checking for me. The pandemic, let me see that. Nobody was checking for Joe. You know, as much love as I gave out and I was like, you know what? It's time for me to just, you know what? Y'all ain't Joe is closed right now. It's about Joe now. And so these revelations or insurrections, all these things are wake up moments, aha moments in life. And I'm in such a good place right now that I was like, you know what? I'm going to start vocalizing how I feel about I mean, I'm not going to talk about people, but I'm just saying, I'm just going to let you know how I feel about certain things. And, and especially in the comedy game, because I've been very quiet. You know, I've just been, you know, giving and giving, giving. But um, it's just being authentic is so refreshing hard you know it's refreshing and yet i you know i i often the reason i asked i guess tara that question is also because i've had again this is like phase two of white people calling me to, with their apologies and they're like how are you feeling and what do i do now i mean i got a call again about like my children feel ashamed to be white you know and that's why i was asking tara that question because you know, she's got, she's a conservative. Does How does she stand by or how does she navigate during this time when so many are feeling sort of ashamed with where they've been or, and I just think it's, it's, 
it's a weird thing because I watched that video with um, and I keep bringing it up and I know it's kind of crazy, but that video with David Bowie and in the MTV, it was retweeted a thousand times. And I was like, why is this? It was done. It was a video such a long time ago. But why is it relevant now? Did you see the video with David Bowie? And he's in an interview with the MTV guy. And he's like, why aren't there more black artists on MTV? Right, right. I did see that, but I didn't know what it was about. I was like, I thought it was I thought it was his birthday or something. Yeah, why is it yeah, trending, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, why is it him asking that question? And I think, I don't know, John, did you see it? I did see it. Yeah. And it's just like, this is what I tell white people when they ask. I go, watch that video because he didn't skip a beat. He didn't have to do that. He did not have to do it. He didn't ask. He wasn't crazy when he asked the question. And he was mindful. Like, it's the way he just... Everything about that is so authentically that man. And there are very few people who, when in a position, do what he did, black or white. You just nailed it because I've been telling a joke about exactly that on stage, precisely that on stage. I've been telling a joke about that I was out on the parkway, everybody screaming, no justice, no peace, then the, the police, right? And the, the joke is, that it would be nice if you guys said that when we needed you to say it. Right. Not out there on the parkway yelling into the wind. It would be nice when I was looking for an apartment and I couldn't find one when my realtor was standing there with that white woman who owned the building. That's when I need you to scream, no justice, no peace. <laughs> so the joke that I'm telling on stage is exactly that. When do you do that venting? We need you to do that venting when you're sitting there one-on-one -on -one with that white reporter on MTV. I need you to do that when you're the realtor and you know this guy works at the seller. You know his credit score is over 700. That's when I need you to spaz out. I need you to spaz out when you walk into that writing room for an all-black TV show. I need somebody at the front of the, uh, the joint to be like, how are we going to write this show? And there's no black people here. What the fuck is going on? Yeah. That's when I need you to scream, no justice, no peace. That's when I need you. I tell a joke about that exact thing. I need Netflix to step it up, too, with the comedy department. <laughs> I mean, that, you know what I mean? I'm, I, I've been sitting here going, how many of them are self-reflecting right now? I, re I really want to admit what they've done. You know, Comedy Central for a long time, it was so hard for black comedians to just get on. Unless they appeal to them, you know, in the way that they and I and I just wonder how many of those executives or, you know, people in Hollywood, not just con for comedy sakes, but ha are having a moment with themselves right now where they can honestly say, we don't let black people tell their stories in the way they want to tell them. I don't think that they have any regrets. I think that we are being we are fooling ourselves if we think that these people are sitting around kicking themselves because they're not. People will justify what they did by they're not going to go back and say, hey, I'm, I, I shouldn't have done that. Or, I should, or, or maybe they'll say it if they have to, if they're put on the spot. But I don't I, I don't believe it for a minute. I am someone who wholeheartedly believes, you know, asking. It's almost like I think it was Malcolm X or somebody saying, like asking your oppressor to help you get right is fool's gold. You got to figure out how to make moves. And then they'll say, oh, we missed it. You know what I mean? But take, for example, I have so many friends who have a tenth of the following that I have that have never closed the show that have taped specials. 
Me sitting around and being like, hey, how come Netflix won't come even when we watch these awful specials? Does anyone think that 90% of comedians that we watch on TV are funnier than John Laster? No one in their right mind thinks that. I'm going to start doing my own. I'm joking. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was like, wait, hold yeah. on. You went too far, bro. <laughs> with, friends, with, with friends like these, I'm never doing another podcast. <laughs> with friends like us, I'm never doing another podcast. Um, well, I can say during the summer of Black Lives Matter March after George Floyd, I got looped into this um, email. Uh, industry folk that was sending me opportunities you know, because there's like, you know, we, you know, writing uh, opportunities and stuff. And, you know, I was like, oh, they, they, they didn't say this is why they put me in this email loop. But it was in the vein of, you know, we have to do more to get people of color in these writing rooms and, and these um, opportunities, these auditions. And I was like, oh, like writing packets for SNL or, or um, um, these TV shows and stuff like that, giving us an opportunity that we never would get. And these are people that, you know, I, I think are cool in the industry, but it's just like, oh, well, you know, do your part. And to me, that's helping the situation. I, I don't know how close I'll get to Netflix, but <laughs> I'm just saying the opportunity, some of them took it, you know, and, and, and forged the opportunity for some of us, you know, and, I, and I'm the one I'll share that shit with everybody. You know, once I get something. Yeah, we really do have to have our own. I mean, like, it's funny that these hoodlums or these terrorists that went to Congress, that's what they're talking about in a similar way now about (laughs) creating their own, their own platform. Like all of a sudden they sound in black. We need our own stuff. We need our own, you know, because they know they can't be heard on these things. I am afraid of where they're going. But I don't know. Why don't they leave America? Because they think their America is, in their mind, this is not their America. I mean, but a lot of them are also, like, there were Black people there. That's not too. Well, I, I, don't, I don't think that they see it that way. And I think that they, they keep telling us how they see it over and over and over again. And people keep saying, oh, they're a fringe. They're not a fringe. But what the way that these people see this, and I'm talking about regular people. That I love that you mentioned, Marina, that there were that there were policemen there, there were lawyers there. So don't don't act like these are some hillbillies that ran out of a mountain in West Virginia. It's not what happened there in that in what we saw on television. But the way that they see this thing is just like a basketball game. The three of us are sitting here and we say, hey, here's the rules to the game. Everybody starts playing the game. And as long as you guys are winning, it's good. But as soon as there's a loss, you grab the ball and say, the game's not going to go on anymore. This isn't working. That's what we saw. We saw the kid who grabbed his ball and said, oh, two seats in Georgia and y'all throwing our man out? We want to take the ball and go home. We don't care about democracy anymore. To hell with it. Right, true. To hell with it. If this game doesn't work for us, burn the whole thing down. Nobody plays. And the scariest thing is if someone, and Suba had said this a while back on the show, if someone who had just a little bit more finesse than Trump, imagine what destruction would have been. I mean, he's just an idiot in that way. He couldn't even, he could have had, he could have had four more years if he had just 
you know, shut his mouth and acted a certain way because those people do exist. Those people were there on the on the Capitol. Well, and I'll give you a couple more examples. First of all, he got 70 million votes, more more than anyone ever other than Joe Biden ever. Right. Number two, if you stop and think about this, if only white people got to vote in this country, he easily would have won reelection. A lot of people don't realize if you just take the, the white voting population, he easily would have won. The only thing that saved him was black women, black people, Latino people not voting for him, and then some suburban women. But if you just take the white vote, if you look at it today, easily, easily. So when, when, when people say to themselves, oh, you know, my uncle Rick in West Virginia is racist. No, it ain't. They're in Williamsburg. They're in Bed-Stuy. Don't get it twisted. They are in Portland. They're in Austin. Some of the most liberal places on earth they're there, too. This ain't a hillbilly problem. And some of them are black, too. That's the crazy part about all of this is that there are some black people who fell for this, too. I mean, anybody interview them? I have them. I have them in my family. I'll say uh, anybody interview them. Well, I mean, I hung up on my mom. <laughs> I don't know if that counts. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my mom was into Trump. I haven't really, I haven't spoken to her. I mean, I spoke to her on Christmas Day. So for the listeners, the listeners know this. I spoke to her on Christmas Day. I wished her a Merry Christmas. And it's also my birthday. And she's like, well, hello. <laughs> so I'm curious as to what she feels now, but I can't have the conversation with her because like, it's too close for I could have a conversation with someone who's not in my family that is probably black and votes for Trump more than I could in my own. Because for me, I'm like, I'm you gave birth. I yeah. can't, right. you right. know, right. Um, right. Wow. like we have we have to at some point, my mom and I have to have this conversation and to give to be fair to her. She did ask me to explain things to her why she was wrong. But the thing is, for me, I get too angry. Like, I'm like, your grandchildren, that's one reason they have to, they, you know, I talk to my nieces every Thursday. We call it Titi Thursdays, right? It's Spanish for aunt, not titty. Okay. <laughs> and I talk to, you no, know, cause some people are like Titi. Um, <laughs> but I talk to them every Thursday and they are very angry at white people. My nieces, one is reads at a college level. She's 14, reads at a college level. She's very smart. And she's like, I don't really, I mean, I don't know the the, uh, the overall view of black kids right now who are at home watching this. But I have to say there is a generation of young kids, like 14-year-old teenagers who are very, who are dealing with this virus, right? Who are stuck at home, bored, angry. The fallout from this from that generation is going to be very interesting to see. They're not, they're not going, Oh, I want to listen and reach over to the other aisle. They're done. Right. They're done with white, white people. Yeah. Right. They're done with them. And as much as I can go, well, you know, they're not all that way. They're not having it. Yeah. So I don't know if that's just them, but I would have to say like, they're very educated kids. And, and clearly, it's it's definitely not all white people. I mean, I would, you know what I mean? I, I, would, I, I wouldn't make that stretch. But I also don't think that it's ever going to, you, you, you cannot say that this is a fringe thing. And it's not your uncle in West Virginia. This is a large 30 to 5 to 40 
at least percent. And I would say, I don't, I don't know where you almost, you are almost at a point where we can say half of white people agree with what Donald Trump is talking about. And, 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 and I think the percentage of white people that voted for him obviously is greater than 50%. So if you're in a room with white people, the, the odds are that at least half of them totally fine with this guy. And that, and that is creepy. That is creepy. And the conversation that's happening now is, well, we're not in agreement with what happened on the Capitol, but we do still believe in Trump. And it's like, no, you can't do that. You you don't. uh That's a psychosis, though. That's a psychosis of a split between, you know, what the norm is. They've been outed. They've been outed publicly now. And so they don't know how to reconcile the two parts. So they want to have it, still have it where uh, Trump's not bad, but they don't want to go against their party, if you will. But they, they didn't like what he did, but they still believe in him. They got to reconcile it. And I'm not, doing, I'm not doing that work for the white people. I don't want no phone calls telling me your kids don't. You know what I'm saying? Because now you want me to absolve you from the guilt that you feel for doing the stuff that you did, that your people did. Because that's what white people do when they're trying to absolve themselves. They feel guilty. You know, they know they did something wrong or they know the party did something wrong and they want to make you feel better. Uh, it, it wasn't all of us. But I think that that's fair, Joanna. I think it's fair to say it's not all of us. I mean, the thing that I have a problem with is trying to act like these are isolated incidents or my uncle is this. No, there's so many more people that are like this. And then we talk about things like, oh, look at Netflix, look at Comedy Central. They're made up of these people. Yeah. Yes. Stop, let's stop pretending. Let's stop saying that it's some fringe. Let's stop calling it some fringe. This is who this country is made up of. And it is a large, large swath of this country. We're talking about 40% of people that will not budge. And even though they're talking about what happened on the Capitol, it didn't bother you that there were children in cages? Didn't bother you that he stood on international TV and wouldn't shut down white supremacy? in a debate in front of the entire world, none of that bothered you? Didn't bother you he stood there in Charlottesville? Grabbed them by their pussies. Yeah, all of yes. it. Yes, and 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 then and, and what did they do? They justified it, just like they're going to do with this capital thing. I still see him eating Mexican food. Remember, he was like, look, I'm having a taco. I'm good. I'm good with Mexicans. It's the most offensive. It was just egregious. I love that word. Egregious. <laughs> now, I do want to say I want to get out, but I want to I want to say, Joanna, yes, you have done something, though, that is really great as we're talking about, like, you know, opportunities and for black comedians. Can you tell our listeners about? Uh, yes. What you've done. Right. I created the Black Women in Comedy Festival on the East Coast. Uh, there is one on the West Coast. We have one on the East Coast that I created in 2018, and the festival was 2019 because there was a festival in New York City happening, and it just so happens that the article came out, and on the cover was white women, all white women. And so we we were just having a discussion in this Facebook group. Somebody brought it up. Hey, you're in New York City. How are you going to have a festival with no black women involved? And come to find out, <clears throat> they sent the press kit, right? But the journalist that did the article chose only the white women. So there were women of color in the festival. So the, the, the task at hand was the journalists chose 
not to highlight the black women in the festival. But during during the, the conversation, I was like, fuck them. We do our own festival. So that's what came out of it. So I thank the festival for inspiring us. Um, and as black women, you know, we always, always have to raise the bar because that was October 9, 2018. The festival was February 2019. Four months, we put together a kick-ass festival um, that was well-received, you know, um, it was a need for it. We're in New York City. We're in New York City where no one's checking for Black women unless you have an in, unless somebody knows you. Um, so I, we accepted four, about 40 to 50 Black women from all over. There was industry there that didn't let us know they were there. Some, one of them got on laugh tracks. A couple of them got Just for Laughs audition. So it let me know that we were needed. We were needed. We were needed. We were needed. It was needed. And that to me speaks to exactly what we were just talking about. Instead of us complaining, bang. And look what you ended up with. Yes. So COVID knocked us out of the park for 2020. So now we're moving to Juneteenth weekend, June 16th to the 20th in Brooklyn. We're going to stay in the Bed-Stuy area. It's going to be a comedy crawl. Our website is Black Women in Comedy Festival. Uh, you are a headliner, Marina. Uh, thank you so much for signing on. Um, definitely, John, I would love to have you involved in, in teaching a class or a workshop or a panel about the business because um, these young ladies that are coming up, we're also um, joining forces with stand-up girls who teach young girls, Black girls, comedy as a tool for confidence building, um, public speaking. So they're joining us um, in a sponsorship deal. But the goal is to prepare us Oh. And the overall theme of this festival was Black women and mental health and self-care. So the first panel, we had a psychologist, we had a psychiatrist, and we, we were talking about how it feels to be a Black woman in the industry that has made us invisible, that we're not seen on a screen. You know, then all of a sudden, it seemed like once the conversation, Issa Rae and all these um, Black sketch comedy shows, like, it was a parade of black women. So we, we're, we're riding that wave, but still the festival is needed. Um, we have, we're, we're a sorority now of black women from all over. So when I get an audition, I, I got a network that I send it out to. But the festival was definitely something that's needed. It's needed for our mental health. I'm trying to align myself with a mental health organization to tie it in because comedy is healing. We know that it's healing. So I just want to make sure that we are seen. We we have representation um, in all areas of stand-up comedy. And to know that, you know, I'm a comedian, but I like being behind the scenes as well. I like producing. I like managing. So this right here is my baby, my new baby. And with friends like us, there's no way comedy will ever die because yeah. I know you guys. Thank you. <laughs> yes, I love it. John? Uh, hi, I'm John Lasser. And with friends like us, anything is possible. Oh, where can they find you, John? Oh, you can find me at He Was Funny. I think it's in one of these corners. Um, that's how you spell it. So hit me at He Was Funny. Okay. Check out my film on Amazon. Amazon free. It's free right now. Amazon Prime right now. One bedroom. And y'all be looking out for my app, Black, which should be coming out in the next 60 days to support black businesses. It's called what? It's called Black. 
B-L-A-P-P. Oh. Yeah. Nice. Bluffy Bless. Okay, I see that. Businesses in your in your area. And then also you can toggle and go online and buy, you know, buy from black businesses online. Uh, will it be restaurants included? Restaurants? Absolutely. Okay, all right. Okay. Okay, so I'm going to talk to you about tying the festival and how the, what's her name? Kwanzaa Crawl did. I don't know if you remember how Kwanzaa Crawl. Yeah, happened. Carrie. Yeah, and she had, a, the app was able to toggle all the restaurants and stuff involved in the Kwanzaa Crawl, so maybe that's You could just, you can hit one button, all the bars will pop up. All right, we in there. We in there. Well, Marina Franklin. Um, I want to thank you both and it, this was a great conversation very timely it will go out next week um, you can find me at my website marinafranklin.com or my link tree which is also Marina Y. Franklin which has everything there uh, my special uh, the live shows that we did over the holidays go to that link tree Marina Y. Franklin we also have hoodies t-shirts and uh, this is one of the t-shirts. The hoodies are, are are very nice. I can't give them away for free. Sorry. But it's very limited supply. So get your hoodie now. And with friends like us, when you reach across the aisle, make sure you ask the right questions. Check us out. <laughs> I always try to get that in. I can't help it. Just like gold, it's so so pure, it purifies my mind and lets my spirit soar.